been a while since I've been able to come back here. Uh, it's good to see um, a lot of faces I know. I bet I know about 70% of the crowd here this morning. That's encouraging. Uh, it's also encouraging when you see a lot of folks you don't know. You know why? That's a sign the church is growing. So in the last time we were here, my, whoa, that's an echo. Last time uh, my wife and I were here, we were just amazed at all the new faces, all the ways that this church is just, just touching this area. Um, I was thinking, by the, by the nature of life, by the nature of ministry, I don't get to see most of y'all that much. I get to see Barrett now and then. I get to see Will a lot. He's a student in my class, and that's, that's a joy. No, he's, he is a joy. Um, uh, but I don't get to see much, most of y'all uh, most of the time because that's just the way life is, has kind of played out. But you're still part of our ministry, and you might not even know it. Um, one of our side ministries uh, beyond just Mid-America is my wife and I, we help Pioneer Missions. Now, you've had some men here that have spoken here recently that have worked with Pioneer Missions. Uh, Dr. Wade Akins is my father-in-law, and I know he's spoken here pretty recently. And we have a missions organization. It's called Pioneer Missions. And what we do is we travel the world and we train churches, church planners, church leaders in a variety of countries and how they can go out and how they can start new churches. And I would love, I don't feel the Lord leading me to do this today. I don't think it's necessary today. But I would love to just spend the time telling you what all we got to see in the last year. Pretty much my father-in-law goes one way, I go the other. It's better to divide and conquer. I would, love, I would love to go into great detail. I'll go into minor detail, if it's okay. I got to go to Nicaragua. How did I get to go to Nicaragua? Well, in part because of you. You financially support what we do. Got to show up, and at the front door of the church that we were about to train, this guy greeted me, and he said, Hey, Jeff. And I, that's a weird moment because you're like, I don't know you. And he said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, no, I don't. I'm sorry. That's kind of awkward. Hate it when that happens, but I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember you. And he said, you trained me five years ago. Pioneer Missions came and trained me. You trained me in how to go out and start churches. He said, in the last five years, I've been able to start five churches. And now I've brought all these men here, and we're going to come, we're going to learn, and we're going to reach another area of Nicaragua. So do a good job. I said, okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> you helped that take place. Um, went to Vietnam, got to train 60, well, really 65 men and women, all from unreached people groups, all of them. We got in this room, and in Vietnam, it's very hush-hush. It's very, very unsafe. So I wanted them to be hush-hush for my sake. Like I, I wanted to get, home, get back home. and We started the training, and um, they just got so excited because they were learning things that, honestly, I could teach you guys in a couple hours. But they'd never heard these basic principles in evangelism and discipleship and church planning. And they took it, and they were just eating it up, and they just got more and more and more excited. And I would tell them, okay, we need to be kind of quiet. I don't want to go to jail. But after a couple hours of it, I just said, just go with it. And it wasn't because of this dynamic preaching. It wasn't because of me. It was because God was at work and something was happening. And at the end, I don't want to give you numbers because the numbers are kind of mind-blowing, but at the end of the training, they all said, church by church would come to me and we'd say, I think we know how to do it. I think we've got a vision how we can reach this set of villages around where we live. We're going to try to start X number of churches. 
that happened not solely because of the funding of ICC, but in part because of the funding of ICC. You had a hand in what happened in Vietnam. Met a guy in Malaysia. I got to go to Malaysia. You had a part in that because of the funding that came from ICC. Met a guy in Malaysia. This man, I don't know how he did it. He wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me because he was so humble. He has helped from Malaysia start the largest series of seminaries in China because he's Chinese based out of Malaysia. He's helped start 90 seminary slash training centers. I said, how did you do this? And he said, God. I said, I know, but how did you do it? And he said, God. That's all I'll tell you. Now that's humility right there. I got to see him. I got to train some of, some of his people at his school because of ICC. There's, there's Ivory Coast. You met Abele, I think, about a month or two ago. Um, I think he spoke here for about 15 minutes from Ivory Coast. Abele had the best line from the year of all the places I trained. I said, Abele, in the Ivory Coast, I know it's a great harvest. I know God is moving. How long does it take you typically to start a church? And he got sheepish, and he got embarrassed, and he looked at me, and he said, I'll confess we've had a rough year. I said, Abele, that is okay. Ministry happens in seasons. Sometimes there's harvest. Sometimes there's sowing seasons. It's okay. How long does it take you to start a church in your environment? He said, well, lately it's taken us up to three weeks. (laughs) Three weeks? I mean, God is moving. So you go and you train men like that, and in a situation like that, what do you think is going to happen? God is just going to bust that place wide open. That happens because God has allowed churches like you, God has moved churches like your church to invest in people that get to go and train those men like that. So no, we don't get to see you that often anymore. That's just the way apparently life works out. But you are still part of our ministry, and we thank you for what you have done. That's also a plea to please keep it up next year for us. (laughs) You knew there'd be a plea in this. Secondly, before I preach, I will be honest, I'm always uncomfortable doing this. I don't do it that much, but I have to uh, because I I believe in this. Um, I'm about to plug a book, and boy, I'm telling you, if I were a visitor and some guy started to plug a book, I'd be like, what is that guy doing? But a lot of y'all are like family, so, you know, I'm always asking family for money, so this is is how it works. Now, um, about a decade ago, more than that, actually, God laid on my heart. I really wanted to write a book. I didn't feel like I was academically ready, and I didn't feel like I was ready in terms of ministry experience to do it. And uh, so I wrote a book. It's on the back table. Um, I know that Barrett has already mentioned it, and Mickey's already mentioned it, but I, I wanted you to know why I wrote this. ICC was part of the reason why I wrote this. Because ICC just reminded me just how multicultural our world is becoming. And whereas you can live in a small town in America and maybe only interact with somebody who's Caucasian or African American or Latino, you go to Memphis, you're going to be able to have a touch with somebody, with people groups all over the world. And if you want to know the numbers, I've got them. I mean, just just one of the things we do at Mid-America. There, it's just mind-boggling how many corners of the world you can reach within a three-square-mile radius of ICC. You all probably already know that anyway. Well, if you're going to have people from all over the world, you're going to have to figure out a way to share your faith with them. And this is one thing I've learned in the ministry after a long time in the ministry now. Most folks really want to share their faith. 
You really do. Most folks in this room want to share their faith, but when the, when the fat hits the fire, you just don't know how to do it. You really don't. And that causes you to be timid in the process. Now, I'm not talking about you individually. That might not apply to any of you in the room. But most folks that I've met throughout the years of ministry, they want to share their faith. They just don't know how, and they really don't want to be obnoxious in the process. There's nothing worse than an obnoxious evangelist. So what I did is I interviewed 15 true, godly, kind, experienced soul winners from around the world. People that are front line that work with Muslims, with Hindus, with Mormons, etc., etc. I said, how do you start a conversation? How do you get to the gospel? How do you mold that relationship? And then how do you lead somebody to Christ? And that brought out how to share Christ with your friends of another faith. And it's, if you want to know how to witness to a spiritist or a Muslim or a Mormon or a Hindu, etc., etc., as a Catholic, Protestant, witness to everybody. Um, this book should be able to tell you how to do it along the way, step by step. And we got some in the back, and they are 10 bucks. and I say this every time, not a dime of it goes to me. It all goes to missions. So that was something when I told God, if I write this book, please let me write it. I just don't want to make any money off of it. And he said, okay. I don't know what, he, I don't, I don't know what his voice was at the moment, but I, we went ahead and did it anyway. So it, it seemed to have gone pretty well along the way. All right, so I've done the book plug. Take out your Bibles. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. And that's perfect because that's just the three I want to read to start with. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And then when you find it, look back up at me. All right. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. The, our walk with Christ, you know what it ought to be? It ought to be joyous. Really should. When people see you, and I've kind of changed how I've phrased this, when people see you, they ought to, they ought to see the joy of Christ in you. Not necessarily when you're just walking down the street alone. That might be kind of weird. But when they see you with others, when they see you interacting with someone else, when you're talking with someone, that person should recognize, man, there's something joyous about this person. Ministry ought to be the same way. Ministry ought to be something that is spirit-filled and powerful and joyous and brings you happiness. All too often, ministry comes off as a guilt trip. It's a standard line that we teach students at Mid-America. 20% of the people in your church are going to do what? Want to take a guess? 80% of your work. And 80% of your people, the rest of the people, are going to do 20% of the work. It's just a reality in church work. Ooh, I just got to watch people squirm. Ooh, this is kind of fun. It's been a while. It's true. 20% are going to do 80% of the work. 80% are going to do about 20% of the work. It's just, it's almost a, a maxim you can use in any aspect of life. But for those 80% that, that, that want to serve, it's just a struggle because deep down what they say is, well, I feel like I should serve, but there's just no joy in it. 
I really deep down don't like it. Well, that's not what our, what our life in Christ is supposed to be like. I've been crucified with Christ so that I no longer live. But Jesus Christ, who does what? Lives in me. He is in you. The one person, the one being in the universe that is absolutely 100% joy, 100% love, peace, patience, kindness, fullness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, He is in you. But all too often, we make our decisions, we live our lives in Christ based on other things than Christ. And it makes us live our life joylessly. Now, how can we overcome that? Barrett, he called me about a week ago, and he said, you know, I, I, I don't want to tell you what to preach, which is typically what the next lines that's going to come out is they're going to do what? Tell you what to preach. But Barrett didn't, <laughs> but Barrett didn't do that. He said, what we need for 2013 we need a sermon talking about how we can truly grow in Christ in 2013. 2013 ought to be the year of joy for you. It ought to be the year you fall in love with Jesus. It really ought to. Now, there's other cool things that could and should happen in 2013. But if you fall in love with Jesus, I mean really fall in love with that man you cannot see, you cannot touch, you cannot hear audibly, If you can finish 2013 and do that, it does not matter what happens. The stock market might tank. Your job might not work out great. You might even flunk a test at school, although I know nobody has done that here ever. (laughs) It won't matter. If you fall in love with Jesus in 2013, that is a good year. How can you go about falling in love with Jesus in 2013? What I'm going to tell you is an intensely personal sermon. Intensely. It is what God has shown me in 2011 and 2012. Um, and it has, ma- it has changed the way I view ministry. It's changed the way I interact with people. And it has changed just about every aspect of my life. But I can preach this with some authority because I'm still on a journey and I haven't mastered what I'm about to preach. So I know that uh, this is not something that's going to happen to you overnight. Galatians 2, starting in verses, uh, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Cephas is Peter, by the way. He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was what? Afraid. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, son of encouragement, Barnabas, a guy you just can't find much wrong with in Scripture, even Barnabas was led astray. Just keep it on that slide up there for now. Now you're looking at that thinking, well, how can that passage teach me how to love Jesus better? I don't don't know where he's going. Well, we're not going to be going verse by verse in this sermon. We're going to be looking at the Scripture in a little bit different way. You have Peter. Peter, who was the leader of the worldwide church 
There wasn't really a hierarchy at that time. But if there was one man that the church would look to and say, that's the guy that leads us, it's Peter. Peter was given the gift in Acts chapter 10 of being able to see Cornelius and open the door to the Gentiles to where the church could say, okay, Jesus did not only come just for the Jews, okay, not only for the Jews and the Samaritans, but for the Gentiles, which is us, or at least most of us along the way. I don't know your ethnic background. If there's any man who should know how to interact with Gentiles, well, it's Peter. But here's Peter who knows the right thing to do, who knows what he's supposed to do. I mean, it's been revealed by God himself through the Holy Spirit that, yes, he can interact with the Gentiles. What does Peter do when he goes up to Antioch, which is in Syria, by the way, for today? When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, I as Paul, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. At one point in time when Peter is at Antioch, He eats with the Gentiles. He fellowships with them. He's one with them. He's doing the right thing. But then the Jews come from Jerusalem. And James, who's the brother of Jesus, comes. When men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he changed. He changed on a dime. The leader of the church of the world changes and starts to do the wrong thing. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Fear. Peter fell into a trap of two sins. Everybody in this room has certain sins that you struggle with. Lust, bitterness, anger, laziness, selfishness. I I don't know what your particular sin might be or sins might be. Peter fell into the trap of two sins right here. First of all, he fell into the sin of hypocrisy. Other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy and it ultimately affected other people as well. He fell into the sin of hypocrisy and he fell into the sin of elitism. And he separated himself from the Gentiles. But it wasn't hypocrisy and elitism that was his problem. See, oftentimes in our deep struggle to know Jesus, we look at the things in which we fall short on and say, God, if I could just eliminate my anger, then I will know you and then I will fall in love with you in 2013. If I can just get rid of my elitism, then I will know you and then I'll be... Oh, and then I'll, I'll, I will love you and things will change in 2.13. Or my, or my hypocrisy or whatever surface sin it might be. But folks, all these things are surface sins. These surface sins are not what keep you from knowing Jesus. It's your root sins that keep you from knowing Jesus. It's the root things that cause you to make the decisions that you make. And if today... In the next 20 minutes, you can dig down deep and say, Ah, I'm not really that angry a person. What I really am is a fearful person. I'm really not a selfish person. What I really am is deep down, a a deeper sin is, is a prideful person. There's a man who, um, his name is Roland Mueller. Now, if you've heard of him, I am stunned. 
But he's a, he's, a, he's a former missionary to the Islamic world, and he writes under a pseudonym. I don't even know his real name. His pseudonym is Roland Mueller. He can't write with his real name because of, for, for danger issues. He said that no matter where you go in the world, people make their decisions in life based on three things. All three are wrong. And depending on where you are in the world, people groups will make their decision in one of these main areas. People make their uh, make decisions based off of three things. None of them are of God. Guilt, pride, and fear. Guilt, pride, and fear. Now, there's a little flaw in this plan. There's also the idea of unbelief, but that's not good. that didn't make this sermon, or this thing would go way too long. Guilt, pride, fear. And if, you can, and if you can dig down deep and if you can think to yourself, ah, I'm making decisions not really based off hypocrisy, not really based off of envy, not really even based off of doing something good, but I'm making my decision based off of guilt, pride, or fear. Then you'll know why you're not acting in the way you're supposed to be. And then you'll also know why your ministry isn't as joyful as it should be. I bet you anything. In fact, I'd bet everything I own that you're struggling with at least one of the three, probably all three in your life. Guilt, pride, and fear. For Peter, fear caused him to act incredibly inappropriately. Let's look at fear. 2 Timothy 1.7. If you, well, you can go ahead and look it up. Why not? 2 Timothy 1.7. Second Timothy 1 7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. I wonder how many of you base many of your decisions, good or bad, based on fear. Let's, let's now try to make this, apply this to you today. All right, how many of you would define yourself as people pleasers? Raise your hand. Raise them high. You will please me if you raise them high. (laughs) Okay, about half the crowd. That's about right. That's about right. There is nothing wrong with trying to please people. People pleasers, that, that whole term has been given a hard rap. It's nothing wrong with going about and saying, you know, I want Robbie to be happy. I like Robbie. I want him to be happy. I want him... I do like Robbie. (laughs) (laughs) I want that relationship to go well. People that are, for the other half, that didn't raise your hand about not being a people pleaser, oftentimes you might should try a little harder (laughs) to be a people pleaser along the way. There's one problem with being a people pleaser, though. Why are you a people pleaser? Are you trying to please that person because you love him? 
Are you trying to please that, your wife because you love her? Are you trying to please your, that, that co-worker who's not that nice to you because you have Christ in you? Because you have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in you? Because you just want to fulfill your, the joy that he has in you? Or are you being a people pleaser because you are afraid that person won't like you. You you sense the difference? You see the difference? If you base your life trying to please others because you're afraid you won't be liked by everybody, well, first of all, that's never going to happen. You are not going to be liked by everybody. That's impossible in this world. And second of all, fear, according to 2 Timothy 1.7, is what? It's not of God. God did not give us a spirit of fear. I started thinking about relationships I've had through the years. Ah, I might as well just go ahead and make this personal. I started thinking about relationships I've had through the years. I can't tell you how many relationships through the years I have based that relationship on, even if I didn't even really like that person, even if I didn't really want to have, spend time with that person, I would be extra nice because why? I was afraid that person wouldn't like me. And I bet there's people in the room that are the same way. Fear is not of God. Fear is debilitating in every aspect of life. It doesn't have to just be personal relationships. Fear can, can be detrimental just to your work. How many of you just out of curiosity are in medical school in here right now? Raise your hand. Of course, most of the medical students are going to be gone today. I have fought time and time again when I was here. I used to look at these guys, and I would think, A, I'm really glad I'm not them. B, I would think to, uh, to myself, I mean, what a, what, it's a tough life for four years or however long you go through medical school. Um, it's longer than that. Um, but I used to think, if I, were a, if I were a medical in the medical profession, and I would think to myself, that first time I would have to do any kind of incision if I went into surgery. Or that first time I had to diagnose somebody and I would tell them, what if I tell them they have lupus and what they really have is a backache? Or, you know, what if I miss it? <laughs> what if I miss it completely? I, I'm, I, I would just think it would be horrifying. <laughs> Amen or oh me, the... What if I were a lawyer and I looked up the wrong precedent of the case and ended up sending this guy to jail for 140 years for jaywalking? What would happen (laughs) when you sit back and you say, okay, wait a minute, this fear I'm feeling, according to the Bible, this fear that's directing my actions, according to the Bible, fear is, in 2 Timothy 1.7, fear is not of what? Fear is not of God. It will change the way you act at work. It will genuinely change the productivity of your life. It will change the way you interact with people. If you will say, uh-oh, at this moment, I am letting fear be the, be the one that dictates my decisions, not the one who lives in me, who is Christ. So many people in this room, I'd be willing to bet, are allowing fear to control their life. Oh, how about guilt? Oh, 
that's a good one. How many of your parents used guilt as a motivator? Raise your hand. You need to raise your hand. You need to raise it. I'm good at guilt. I'm a teacher. We love guilt. Guilt's interesting. Fear debilitates you. Fear will destroy your relationships with one another, and fear will destroy your relationship with God, and it'll end up be the reason why you make decisions. And as I look, as I thought about this sermon, it's almost always negative. Guilt's different. Guilt can actually bring you to do some good things for the kingdom. Guilt can be a motivating factor to make you do good things. Just not godly ones. Barrett can get up here and he can tell y'all, I need workers for next Saturday for an event we're going to have. I know you're tired, but I need you. And there's going to be a percentage of you in this room, there's going to be a percentage of you in this room that are going to go, I don't care, I'm busy on Saturday. (laughs) There's going to be a smaller percentage that are going to say, well, he needs me on Saturday. I'll, I'll do it for Jesus. Right? Actually, don't amen anything at this point because I can, I can get really awkward. The church, I'll, 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 let's go a little bit deeper. The church needs to raise $400,000, which quite frankly, I don't think is that much. I, I hope y'all don't either. To do what y'all can do, the potential you have, you can change downtown Memphis for $400,000. Now, I know you don't have $400,000. I know that. But I know the one that does. It's really not that big a deal. Somebody, you can amen that. That's the moment you can amen in this sermon. Amen? Amen. amen. So Barrett's going to come to you, or, or Mickey. I don't know who does the more. Probably Mickey. Uh, <laughs> Mickey's going to come to you and he says, we need you to give. We need you to give. We we need you to give. I'm sure he's mentioned that once or twice. (laughs) And you're going to sit back there and say, oh, well, I'll do it, but I just, I'll do it because I know I should. Okay. Actually, you giving the money will be beneficial for the kingdom. You serving on Saturday will be beneficial for the kingdom. But you are not knowing Jesus better if you are doing your ministries based on guilt. The basis of your decision is wrong. The basis of your decision is not being crucified in Christ so that you no longer live. Go ahead and go to the next slide. I'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus Christ who lives in you. You ought to give. You ought to serve. You ought to do the things that this church asks you to do, not based on guilt. Guess what happens to ministries that you do that are based on guilt? Guess what happens to you very quickly? You'll dry up. You will dry up. Now, the danger of this part of the sermon is you're thinking to yourself, Whew, thank goodness, because I feel guilty about all of it. That's why I don't do any of it. I'm not doing it anymore. 2013 is going to be great. Woohoo! This Jeff is great. I'm not giving anymore. Never coming back. That's right. Good night. 
No. What you have to do in that situation, for me, when I, uh, let me give you an example. So my father-in-law ca- calls me up and he says, uh, Jeff, I need you to go down to Bill Street to evangelize. This was a couple weeks ago. Now, I, I had, it had been, eight, it had, you know, that's a long story. You all know what it's like to have long weeks. I did not want to serve Jesus on Friday night at all. I just wanted to go home and watch a really bad movie. You know, something that's something, I just want to see something blow up. That's all I wanted to do on Friday night. He calls me up and he says, Jeff, we have an opportunity to go down on Bill Street. Would you, would you go with me? And I don't want you to think we were some of those guys that put the sign on our chest and start screaming, you're all going to hell. Because all, all it does is get you beat up, all right? So we didn't do that. But I, I knew what he wanted to do, and um, I, knew that the, I, I knew that he needed me. So I said, yes, I'll do it. And then I spent the next two hours miserable. Because what was going on in my mind? What was my mind saying? I don't want to go, but I'll do it for Jesus so in those situations, let me give you a little tip before I, we apply this, all this to your life. In those situations, what you have to do is say, okay, Jesus, right now, I don't want to go to Beale Street. Those people are drunk. Actually, most, people, most of them weren't. Most of them were very nice. I said, but I'm gonna, it's going to be confrontational. I, it's going to be complicated. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go. So right now, Jesus, I don't want to go. Change my heart. I want to do this based on guilt. I want to do this because I love you and I want those people to know you. And by the way, it's a whole other sermon, a whole other story for a whole other sermon. Guess what happened that night on Beale Street? We went and it was incredible. Nobody went crazy on us. Nobody got offended. If you'd have seen how we kind of did the approach, you would see nobody would. People came... I got to talk to people from all over the country who were just visiting Memphis and saying, what are you guys doing? And we're just here to tell you about the love of Christ. And it was so awesome. It's amazing what God will do with you when you just obey. That's an amen moment. Amen. Amen. In those moments, you have to realize Scripture does talk about guilt. By the way, most of the time when Scripture talks about guilt... It really means you have sinned, therefore you are guilty. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But it does talk about false guilt. 2 Corinthians 7.10, let me just read it to you. But boy, this is a good verse for you to just memorize in your life. Godly sorrow brings repentance unto salvation. Godly sorrow brings repentance unto salvation. But worldly sorrow leads to what? Death. False guilt, doing ministry out of guilt, serving Jesus out of guilt will just dry you up. It's like dying inside. Let me ask you something. In your life right now, is your life or your decisions, that you're, that you're, that the way you're living your life, are your decisions based on fear or Jesus? Guilt or the fact that he is in you because you love him, you want to serve him. Fear, guilt, and pride. Pride. Of the three, I don't know about fear. I've I've experienced that in my life. Guilt, most certainly in my life. Ah, but pride. 
Okay, how many of you are prideful? Raise your hand. Just kidding. Don't, don't raise your hand. Probably the ones that raise their hand are, the, are what? Are the, are the least prideful. So you are prideful? And you, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> that was not planned. All right, so pride is the one, is the one of the three that we're going to discuss that is the least evident in our own, in our own hearts. Pride will be the least evident in your own hearts. But it's the most prevalent in the room. Oh, I don't feel bad. It's the most prevalent in any room. It's okay, so. But it's serious. It's amazing how many times pride will literally destroy the joy in your life. Proverbs 16, 18. This one you should know, or you've heard. Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. I got a lot on pride, but I'll just, I can make it a lot more succinct. I wonder how many times you're letting, you don't even realize it, but you let pride dictate the decisions of your life. Because at the core, plus unbelief, which we'll, maybe we'll talk about later, wherever you go, pride, fear, guilt. We even think, oh, we're doing it for Jesus, but it's really pride, fear, guilt. I wonder how many times really pride affects the decisions you've got. Don't raise your hand. How many of you have anger? Now, if you're a male, I'm willing to bet it'd be most of you. I'm not a girl, so I don't know. And so let's just stick with males. Here we go. If you're a male, you probably have, at least at some point in your time in your life, temper issues somewhere along the way. So I was, as I've reflected on what Roland Mueller was talking about, pride, guilt, fear, pride, guilt, fear, and, and he, may, he puts it on a macro scale and he tells you what areas of the world focuses more on guilt and what areas focus more on fear and what areas of the world focus more on pride. It's fascinating. But I, I want this, you to make this personal. All right, so pride. How many of my decisions are really based on Pride. Well, my core sin in my my most easily manifested sin in my life is anger. It's the way I've been since I was five, and I don't lose my temper that much anymore. But, you know, if, if Christy asked me last week, how many times, you know, in a year, how many times do you get angry? Then you have to suppress it inside, at least, you know, at some point during the day. And she said, how many times? A couple times a year? I said, every day. Every day. There's never a day that I don't have to go, I can't believe that student just said that. <laughs> never a day. That's okay. I'm, I'm a sinner. So are y'all. Anyway, um, so I, I, I started to reflect on this issue of pride. How many times in the last decade, and it took a while to do this, by the way, has somebody said something that's been offensive to me well, holy mackerel, that is a long list. Okay, stay in the ministry long enough, to work with people long enough, it's going to happen. I mean, the people say something tacky to you. How many of you had somebody say tacky to you in the last month? Raise your hand. That wasn't a preacher. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just part of working with people. And then I thought about all the times that I let myself either slightly lose my temper, or I didn't respond in, a, in as kind a manner as Jesus would. And then I've thought about 
What really bothered me at that moment? Was it what they said or was it that my pride was hurt? Because people will say things that are tacky to you. It is going to happen. But what ultimately tips the scale over into anger? And you know what hit me? Every time. Now, sometimes the anger started righteously because it was what was said was hurtful. Every time in the last decade that I could recall that I had acted in a manner that was probably inappropriate or slightly inappropriate, it was because my pride was hurt. So from that point on, over the, over, at least through 2012, maybe 2011 as well, anytime uh, somebody has said something that what causes me to have an, want to elicit a response, I take a moment and say, wait a minute, is my response going to be because Jesus Christ lives in me? Or am I doing this response based off of pride? It's amazing how, how often you're letting pride affect the decisions that you're making and you don't even know it. Can't call that old friend from school because they hurt you or because they were more popular than you? Well, a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Can't sit by that goofy guy at school? I experienced this in my own life back in college a lot. Can't sit by that goofy guy at school? Probably because your pride is telling you, I don't really want other people to see me with this person. Get angry when someone wrongs you? Well, that manifests as anger, but what it really is is pride. What you have to do, if you want to experience what the rest of this passage says, I'm going to skip on down to 15 and go through 20. Maybe not. I'm going to go to 17. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith. Justified by faith, y'all. Not by any action that you can do. Not by anything based off of pride or guilt or fear. It's faith in Him. And not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Verse 17. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroy, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Keep going. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've died to pride. You have died to pride. You have died to guilt. You have died to fear. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. All right, well, Jeff, you told me that I'm making a lot of decisions based off of some root sins that I don't even realize I have. So what do I do about it? Quick summary. Here's what you do. In 2013, if you'll do this, I hardly ever say this in sermons. I got about three or four that I'll say this. This is one of them. If you do this, it'll change your life. 
if you'll get up in the morning, and in your, even, if you, even if you're a quiet time person at night, but before you go out during that day, if you'll say, Jesus, if you will help me recognize when I'm making a decision based off of guilt or pride or fear, and if you'll help me turn it to where I'm, I'm focused on you and the decisions I make, I think you'll change my day. Will you help me do that? And then as you're going throughout the day, when those moments of fear well up, if you'll say, Jesus, I think this is fear. And 2 Timothy 1.7 tells me that's not of you. Or when you're about to do a ministry based off of guilt, you say, Jesus, I think I'm doing this based off of guilt. Oh, Jesus, help me do this because I love you. Or if, oh, that slippery pride slips in, you say, Jesus, I... I'm letting pride come in. I guarantee you, not overnight, nothing rarely works overnight. But over time, you'll be making decisions based off of Him and not on those other things. Amen? Amen. Bow your head and close your eyes. Maybe you're here uh, this morning. And on a week like this, goodness, I was here for four years, I know. On a week like this, you've got your committed core. A lot of folks are out of town. Maybe you're here this morning, and you know Jesus, you have walked with Him, but truly, deep down, you've done ministry based on guilt, and your walk with Him has felt joyless, and you are desperate to experience Him in a different way. Ask God right now where you're seated. God, help me not make decisions based on guilt or pride or fear. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're visiting or maybe you've been in this church for a while now. I was in church for years before I finally figured out, wait a minute, I need Jesus because I don't have him. Maybe you're seated here and you're thinking to yourself, I I am controlled by guilt and pride and fear. Well, you will remain controlled by guilt and pride and fear forever without Christ. I am 40 years old. 23 years ago, some man who I do not know, I will have to meet him again in heaven, finally told me how to give my life to Christ. How How to, for me to experience Freedom from guilt, fear, and pride. He told me to do three things. First, he told me to recognize I'm a sinner. Second, he told me that only Christ can save me. None none of my righteous works can. And finally, he told me to surrender my life to him. And I did. Nothing has been the same. Right now, we're going to have a moment of invitation. And in this moment of invitation, I'm I'm going to ask Mickey to come up as well. Um, maybe God's spoken to you this morning and you know you're controlled by guilt and pride and fear or maybe you know that deep down you haven't given your life to Christ and you need to this morning. Right now I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a brief moment of invitation and if you have a decision you need to make with God and you want to, as we stand, as we sing, you come forward, you can grab Mickey's hand or my hand and let's let God do business with you. Let's pray. God, help us as a church. Help us not be controlled by things that are not of you. Help us recognize where we are being controlled and help us surrender everything over to you. God, we ask these things in your precious name.